Welcome to Her Story, the history of Southeast Asia told from her perspective. We'll discover historical figures, matriarchal societies, and contemporary female icons, and maybe learn about ourselves along the way. I'm your host, Agas Ramirez. This is part two of Achenese Women at War. In part one, we talked about Chutnak Din and Chutnamutia, two heroines with very similar elite backgrounds, both widowed twice and fought the Dutch to their very last breath. Their legacy is preserved in both national and popular culture, something that has not been afforded to the majority of female palace guards, guerrillas, and combatants who gave their lives for their country. Anonymous was a woman. This quote, adapted from a line by Virginia Woolf, was inscribed in a coconut shell wallet that was given to me by my maternal grandmother when I was a teenager. That was the first time I encountered it, and I obviously never forgot it. I began to look at anonymous differently and constantly wondered just how much of women's contributions have been lost to history. According to Elsa Clavey-Selleck, there were several European accounts of women's position and role in the Achenese Palace at the beginning of the 17th century. In 1621, Admiral Beaulieu, a French merchant, wrote, The security of the Dalam, the inferior part of the palace, was then guaranteed by a gender division of labor, as 200 horsemen nightly patrolled the grounds about the castle, the inner courts and apartments, of which were guarded by 3,000 women. These women were divided in groups, each of them being placed under the supervision of a female captain. The female servants were unmarried orphan daughters brought to the sultan, war captives from conquered Malay states, as well as a few slaves from India. They were exclusively employed for mounting guard in the dalam or waiting on the sultan. The three groups of women were in charge of the sultan's security and his entertainment. Sitting at his feet, a woman directly received his orders and passed them on to a eunuch who then communicated them to an officer called the Kajuran Gondang, who in turn proclaimed the king's will to the audience. Some performances witnessed by Bolio were also put on by these women. They rarely appeared outside the palace, except for special occasions like funeral processions. Doesn't this remind you a bit of the Krom clone? The Krom clone were, allegedly, the all-female bodyguards of the King of Siam. They were established in 1688 and were a well-disciplined force responsible for the security of the royal family and the maintenance of order within the palace grounds. There's a Patreon bonus episode on that if you're interested. Bolio also wrote that he witnessed some of the Achenese women palace guards being tortured by the sultan for an unexplained disturbance in the night. Quote, These women, 
notwithstanding the excessive torments, did not confess anything, nor charged anybody, and I would have never thought that there could be so much resolution and constant courage in a woman, because none of them ever complained or requested for their lives." Unquote. Now, I'm not sure why Bolio thought previously that there could not be so much resolution and constant courage in women, but there you go. The women who served as palace guards in the 1600s had no political role and their skills and weaponry were confined within the palace grounds. As far as I can tell, we do not know their names. When the Dutch arrived, many women began to participate in politics and combat more actively. We already learned about Chudnakdin and Chunamutia, so now we'll talk about the less well-known women, starting with Tungku Fatima. Tungku Fatima was from Gampong Sialit Parak in North Aceh and was married to Tungku Dibarat. Like the others, the married couple also fought side by side, but notably they fought as commanders of Chunamutia. After Chunamutia was martyred on October 22, 1910, they took care of her son, who was around 11 years old. They lived deep in the jungles of Pasai for a year and a half before being martyred on February 22, 1912. It's not clear what happened to Tukura Jasabi after this, but it seems that he escaped and survived at least until 1946, so if we go by the timeline in the first episode, he would have been almost 50. Next is Tungku Fakina, who worked with someone you already know, Chunakdin. Born in 1856, she lived in the village of Lamdiran in North Aceh, where she taught Islam with her husband, Tungku Ahmad, and her parents' daya, or Quranic school. When war broke out, they joined the guerrillas of Pantai Chermin, where her husband would eventually be martyred. After that, she continued recruiting among women for the holy war and collecting money, which put her in touch with, besides Chunakdin, We'll go back to Chutnak Muligo in a minute. Her greatest achievement is said to have been the formation of a regiment, or suke, made by four battalions, one of them being solely composed by women who stayed in the fort Kuta Chot Wu. Again, it's hard to verify, but there are several female names transmitted by local history as her troop members. Chutpo Fatima Blankpre, when the sultan was captured in 1903, she heeded the call to return to the Daya. Presumably, she began to teach again. She journeyed to Mecca in 1915 and passed away in 1938 at the age of 82. The road, Atong Tungkufaki, still bears her name. Okay, back to Chutnag Muligo, also known as Pochut Muligo. She belonged to the network of Tungku Fakina and was the Panglima Prang, war general of the Samalanga region of North Aceh. She stood in for her brother, Tuku Chikbugis, as Samalanga Ulibalang in 1857 when he went to Lahore, British India, to trade and buy weapons. If you haven't listened to the previous episode, and I highly suggest you do, an Ulibalang is a member of the nobility who ruled over the regencies of the Aceh Sultanate and the colonial Aceh province before 1946. When her brother encountered difficulties returning to Samalanga due to the Dutch blockade, Pochut Muligo held on to her position and led the first battle. In 1880, she defeated the Dutch when they tried to take the fort of Bateili. According to Captain Schumacher, 
Her hatred of the Dutch was so great that she urged everybody who had the capacity to to participate in the war, even if this meant leaving their work in the fields. She also promised that those who would not follow her orders would pay a heavy price. She also supported other regions in their effort to resist, sending funds, weapons, and volunteers to Aceh Basar, where the Dutch were already active. She sounds terrifying, and I love her, 10 over 10, will follow into battle. Now, despite being extremely formidable, that's all we really know about her. She's only really mentioned in connection with Tuku Hamid Azwar, her grandnephew, who is one of the founders of the Parindra, Partai Indonesia Raya, in Aceh, and a hero of the Indonesian War of Independence in 1945-1949. We don't know how or when she died, but since the Dutch recorded their conquests so meticulously and she never appeared on them again, she probably eluded capture to the end of her life. The fort of Batuile was eventually taken by the Dutch in 1904. After the break, we'll talk about Pochut Baren, Pochut Murainthan, and the unnamed woman combatants whose lives we glimpse in Dutch reports. Hi, this is Teacher Mia. I am an English language coach. I am going to share a quick tip for those who are nervous about speaking up in public, especially if they are still studying English. What you can do is to get something to read out loud. It doesn't have to be from your textbook. It can be something from the news, a blog entry, even a social media status message. And read it out loud, but smile as you do so. Why? One, smiling helps you become less nervous. And number two, it relaxes the muscles of your mouth. So what happens is if you're wondering about your pronunciation or accent, if you practice often enough and you relax, a lot of the things that you may have not pronounced correctly before will automatically be corrected. Give it a try. For more English language study tips and to download exclusive self-study guides, or arrange for coaching sessions, visit patreon.com slash English. Again, patreon.com slash English. Check it out! The female Ulebalang with the wooden leg Pochut Baren married an Ulebalang who was also the resistance leader of the Woyla region of West Aceh. In 1898, when she was 18, her husband was killed by the Dutch, she continued his work and fought fiercely until 1906 when her headquarters in Mount Machang was destroyed and her leg was injured. She was brought to a Dutch camp as a prisoner of war. Her injured leg was eventually amputated and she was sentenced to exile to Java. But she, well, she said she recognized Dutch authority so her sentence was commuted and she was sent home where she was even reinstated as Ulebalang. We don't know anything more about this except that she started wearing a wooden leg and that the Dutch kept her under supervision. In episode 1, we did learn that many Achenese fighters surrendered to the Dutch and said that they recognized their authority but continued to work with the guerrillas in secret, so we don't really know. Another female combatant is Pochut Murainthan, a member of a noble family from the Sultanate of Aceh. According to their records, she was considered extremely anti-Dutch. 
A colonial report from 1904 stated that she was the only figure from the Aceh Sultanate who had not yet surrendered, even after her husband did. She separated from him and urged her three sons, Muhammad, Budiman, and Nurdin, to continue the fight. They became fugitives listed by the Dutch Marechaussee, which is, stay with me, a gendarmerie, a military force with law enforcement duties among the civilian population. They just called it Marechaussee, but you would probably know it as the more common term, gendarmerie. When Pochut Mura Intan was captured in their headquarters at Padang Tiji, Dutch war journalist Zent Graf wrote, Veltman, who was well known as Mr. Guide, was also a kind man, and he once knew a certain Achenese woman whom he highly respects even until this day. One of the patrol units in the PD region had captured this woman of Achen nobility named Pochot Mura. That woman was suspected of hiding a single-edged saber within the folds of her clothes. Suddenly, she withdrew this Achenese dagger and shouted, In that case, let me die! Then she attacked the brigade. It seemed that members of the troop were not very interested in fighting a woman who was acting like a madman who stabbed left and right and a moment before she fell to the ground. She suffered from severe wounds. She had two wounds on her head and two more on her shoulder, and one of her tendons was severed. There she lay on the ground, full of blood and mud, as if she were a piece of meat which had been cut up. A sergeant who saw her with full sympathy said to his commander, May I end her life? To which Veltman responded harshly, Are you crazy? They then continued their journey. They wanted that woman to die in the hands of her own people. Several days later, while Veltman was walking through the shops of Bihu between Sigli and Padang Tiji, he heard that Pojodmura was not only alive, but even had a plan to murder all inhabitants in that settlement. Maybe it seems too credulous that a very noble spirit still remained even within a body which had been so ravaged. Cow dung was smeared on her wounds, her condition was very weak after her blood loss, and her body shivered while she moaned in pain. In spite of that, she refused medical assistance. It was better to die than to be touched by a cafe or a non-believer. Veltman, who was fluent in the Achenese language, had a long discussion with this woman in a very respectful manner, as would be accorded to someone of her standing. Finally, she accepted the soldier's assistance, although she had rejected one from a doctor. In 1905, Pochut Mura Intan, who was already unable to walk, was exiled to Java with her two sons and one of the members of the family the Sultan. On her tomb, it is written that she passed away on September 20, 1937. Zankraf, who we quoted at length earlier, also reported there were hundreds and perhaps thousands of Achenese women actively involved in war. He explained that they did not stay at home but went to the battlefield. He wrote, If they also fought, they did so with energy and contempt of death which often exceeded that of men. Archival evidence of such women combatants can also be found in Dutch telegrams sent from Aceh to the Netherlands East Indies Governor-General in Java. They mention women villagers armed with renchong attacking the colonial Marechaussee, hiding weapons and munitions, and said to be disguised in black-colored men's clothes. This wasn't a disguise, though, because these traditional dark pants, known as dog-chasing trousers, were commonly used by women in Aceh. And these women numbered far more than the women we learned about from the nobility, 
They were just much less visible then and all but forgotten today. One reason for that is that the Dutch did not qualify them as enemy, which was reserved for men, but as women, another category in the Dutch classification system and viewed as accidentally killed by the Dutch police. Daily telegrams sent from Aceh to Boitenzorg, or Bogor actually, that's much easier to say, from 1905 to 1930 often bear mention of women in men's clothes or armed women disguised in men's clothes. The Dutch officers did wonder about this. They wrote in the margins of their reports, why so many women casualties? But they just never thought the women were wearing their own clothes and were combatants themselves. They assumed they were disguises and just civilians caught up in the war. A Dutch source describes the following. During a house search in the village of Bova, a Maori was unexpectedly attacked by an Achenese woman with a hidden knife, or grasmes, used for cutting grass, wounding his face. Out of self-defense, he was forced to kill her. In the house were found, besides individual blank weapons, also gunpowder and munitions cargo, together with two barrels of guns and accessory parts. There were other episodes reported by Sandcraft where single Achenese women attacked the Dutch, in the region of PD, East Aceh, for example, a man was shot when attacking a Merashausi patrol. His wife came close to his body, took the kulawang knife, and attacked the soldier who tried to take it from her hand. She was shot dead and died as a martyr. Elsa Kaveselik, and I definitely recommend reading her article, writes that, quote, The tradition of women combatants in times of threat to the survival of Achenese culture and religion was reawakened in the last quarter of the 20th century under the banner of the Movement for Free Aceh, Grakan Aceh Mordeka, or GAM, unquote. That's definitely something we'll talk about in Season 4. Thank you for listening to Episode 19.2. I'm not sure what to do yet for Episode 20, but I did stumble upon a very interesting book by Aruni Madata entitled Fleeting Agencies, A Social History of Indian Coolie Women in British Malaya. I think that might make for a very good topic. It's unlikely that I'll be able to upload in July given my personal work schedule, so I will probably see you in August. As always, thank you to our patrons, Caro, Shamibi by Milish, Jennifer, Christina, Raul, Raymond, Chito, Matt, Ashley, Shireen, Charlie, Chanda, Yati, Kara, and Mando. If you want to join the Patreon, you can give as little as $1 to get a copy of the show notes with all the references, a shout-out at the end of the next episode, and the occasional bonus episode. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at HerStoryCPod. That's HerStorySEAPod. There are so many more stories to tell, and we're just getting started. This podcast was hosted and edited by Agas Ramirez. Thank you for listening, and we hope to see you again next time. Sampai jumpa lagi!